The Cropsey urban legend is a staple on Staten Island in New York. Most of the children who grew up in the area heard of the escaped mental patient who lives in the tunnels under the abandoned hospital. This version, or similar stories, tell of a crazy man who has an affinity for naughty children and would come out at night and snatch them. They would disappear forever. This well-known tale, unfortunately, like many tall tales and spooky nursery rhymes, has some basis in reality. Cropsy may be based on a real-life serial killer. His name was Andre Rand, and he preyed on some of the weakest people, children, and even worse, mentally disabled children. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. I'm your host, Sandy. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Staten Island was once beautiful, sprawling acres of farm and woods. Then, in the 60s, the Verrazano Bridge was built, and the island became prime real estate. It held one of the biggest dumps in the world, one that could be seen from space. That landfill is now on its way to becoming a park. The island was also the place for the mob to dump bodies, because it was the least populated borough. Now, Staten Island is the wealthiest borough, It's also the least populated and is home to 170 parks. The Cropsey legend was used by parents and counselors to warn children to stay away from danger or perhaps just to scare them a little and keep them away from an undesirable area. Willowbrook Park is one of the scariest abandoned areas on Staten Island. It was once home to the huge Willowbrook Hospital, a tuberculosis treatment center, as well as a morgue, and cemetery. It also housed a state school, which was actually a huge home completely stuffed full of mentally disabled people. At its worst, there may have been only one attendant to 50 or more patients. An expose on the hospital shows footage of people laying on the floor in their own waste while other patients play in it. Many patients were screaming, moaning, or crying. The smell was terrible. Unwashed people disease and death were the most predominant scents. Staff members worked day after day among the rancid smells and pitiful cries of the mistreated patients, and they were often powerless to help. They had insufficient manpower and insufficient supplies. This meant that many patients were left to fend for themselves, even if it meant sitting in their own feces and urine and being fed very little. Even after a young Geraldo Rivera released videos that exposed the facility for what it really was, it took over 10 years before the place was shut down. Willowbrook was essentially a dumping ground for people. People who were felt to be undesirable or too much of a burden. Up and down the state of New York, the Cropsey legend has spread, but it may have all started in and around the abandoned Willowbrook estate. In July of 1987, a little girl went missing, When Jennifer Schweiger disappeared, the entire island began looking for her. Her parents papered the town with her picture. She was an adorable little girl who was described as happy and loving. She also had Down syndrome. For anyone who may not know, Down syndrome is a genetic disorder that is caused when abnormal cell division occurs and makes extra genetic material from the 21st chromosome. The genetic disorder causes developmental and intellectual delays. Children with Down syndrome 
are more like you and me than they are different. The bright, loving, and trusting innocence of children with Down syndrome or other disabilities may have been what initially drew the attention of Andre Rand, or perhaps it was just easy hunting. Jennifer was 12 years old, but appeared much younger because of her small stature, which is another common trait of Down syndrome. She had beautiful brown curly hair and almond-shaped eyes. Perhaps it was the added vulnerability of her diagnosis that brought hundreds of volunteers to help search for her, and search they did. People showed up on the large 340-acre property of Willowbrook at all hours. Organizers laid out grids to be searched. There was the land itself, then the old abandoned buildings, and finally the underground tunnels that joined many of the buildings. During the search, the volunteers found that there were many more inhabitants on the land than they had ever realized. Many homeless and mentally challenged people made their homes on the property, in the buildings, and even in the tunnels. One of these was Andre Rand. He quickly became one of the primary suspects in her death. She was seen in his company by two witnesses. She was walking with him and was remembered because he also had a girl's bike with a basket on the front and was seen buying a bag of baby food. He was brought in and questioned only two days after she vanished, but was released because there was no evidence to tie him to her disappearance. About four weeks later, police had been able to build a case against him. He was arrested, in part, because he had an unsavory past that had also involved a nine-year-old girl. He was handcuffed, arrested for her kidnapping, and walked out of a church where he had been staying at the time. The pictures and videos showed him drooling as he walked out with his head down. He was the epitome of what many people would believe to be an insane man. Meanwhile, rumors spread that Jennifer was being passed around by people who lived in the Willowbrook Tunnels. These rumors, of course, hurt her parents deeply. I imagine they barely slept and were probably unable to eat, feeling her loss to their core. After days of searching, the police, sniffer dogs, and many professionals had given up searching for her in Willowbrook Park, but the volunteers wouldn't give up. They kept searching day after day, and their hard work paid off. A volunteer who was searching in one of the open fields noticed some clay dirt balls out of the corner of his eye. When the search was over, he directed the group to where he had seen the disturbance. Underneath the little round balls was a pile of brush and then some compressed dirt. Volunteers began digging and immediately began to smell something ominous. They dug a little further and tiny human toes appeared. At this point, the volunteers left and the police were brought in. Little Jennifer's family tried to see her, but they were not allowed. I think this was for the best. No one should have to see their own child or any child in such a state. Police announced around the same time the news of her death was made public. They were looking for two more bodies of young children on the property. They also released the news that the body had been found only 150 meters from Andre Rand's small encampment. The community went wild. They felt like he was an insane killer. He was given nicknames including the Pied Piper and the Hannibal Lecter of Staten Island, and later, Cropsey. The case against Rand wasn't very strong. There was no physical evidence, only eyewitness accounts. Because of this, Rand was convicted of kidnapping, but not of murder, 
because the jury could not reach a verdict. He was sentenced and would not be eligible for parole until 2008. The police weren't done with Rand, though. They focused in on four other missing children who had disappeared over the previous years in the same area. Between 1972 and 1987, five children, all noted to have varying degrees of mental disability, went missing from the area. In the four cases before Jennifer's, the bodies were never found. Alice Pereira was the first. She was reported missing in 1972. She was last seen by her brother as they played in the lobby of a Staten Island building. According to his report, her brother had told the police he looked away from her for just a moment, and when he turned back, she was gone. Rand was familiar with the area, and police questioned him. In 1969, only a few years before Alice went missing, he was charged with sexual misconduct of the nine-year-old. He pled not guilty in the case, and law enforcement wondered whether Rand, getting away with that the first time, gave him confidence to do it again. Alice was never seen again, and no charges were ever brought against Rand because of lack of evidence. In 1983, 11-year-old Thais Jackson left her mother's apartment to purchase groceries and never returned home. The girl's residence was also in the area that Rand had been known to frequent. He had been recently released from prison at the time of her disappearance and was brought in by police as part of a routine protocol. He was dismissed again without charge. Only one year later, a young man named Hank DeForio disappeared. He was described as looking just like Mick Jagger. Although he was 21, his disability and demeanor made him seem much younger. Witnesses reported seeing him with Andre at a local restaurant in the morning before he disappeared. Police tried desperately to connect Rand to the missing children. It was clear that he had a criminal interest in children with disabilities and social instability. He fit the profile of a man capable of committing such atrocities. Seventeen years after Rand was in jail, he went on trial again. More witnesses came out of the shadows as adults, and they had the strength to come forward. He was now facing the accusation of the kidnapping and murder of seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes, who had disappeared 20 years ago. Holly Ann was small. She had beautiful brown hair and brown eyes, and was very outgoing. The only tie between the two girls was Andre Rand. Her body was never found. N new, now-grown witnesses were interviewed and put on the stand. They placed Rand's green Volkswagen in the immediate vicinity of Holly Ann's home on the day of her disappearance. Although his vehicle had been searched when he was questioned in 1981, the new report suggested that Rand's behavior stood out. So again, the evidence is all circumstantial and eyewitness-based. Holly and Hughes lived in the same apartment building as Andre Rand's aunt. He was there visiting his aunt on the day of her disappearance. Holly Ann was walking to a shop just down the road from her home. She was said to have bought a bar of soap there and then left. The cashier distinctly remembers her because she was five cents short. A young woman named Elsie Castro later came forward claiming that she went in to buy soap and that she was five cents short. Could the cashier have been wrong about who he had seen? At the second trial, Rand, of course, claimed his innocence. 
Holly's brother, who was 14 when she disappeared, testified for her. He had become a lieutenant in the police department and is one of the main reasons this case was brought to trial. He wanted to find the remains of his sister and believed that Andre could tell him where they were. Some of the people who testified were former drug addicts or alcoholics who say that they now remember the details of that night from over 20 years ago. One said that he saw Rand talking to Holly. Another woman said that she heard a scream and heard Holly saying, let me go. A young woman named Tanya Goodson said that when she was only six years old, a small car pulled up and asked her and Holly if they wanted to go get some candy. Holly put her hand out and he grabbed her and pulled her into the car. Tanya claimed that the man's face was covered, but the car matched a description of the car Andre Rand drove. Witnesses said that in January 1983, Rand approached a group of 11 children and lured them into a school bus with the promise of candy and a ride to the park. Rand drove the kids across state lines, eventually arriving at Newark International Airport in New Jersey, before he turned around and drove them back to New York. In retrospect, one of the now adult witnesses stated that he believes that Rand realized he was in over his head and backed out of whatever he had planned to do with the kidnapped children. He said it was nighttime and the kids were outside playing tag in the dark and didn't even realize they had been kidnapped. None of the 11 children were harmed, but Rand was convicted of false imprisonment and sentenced to 10 months in prison. This story gave momentum to speculation that Rand may have been collecting children to pass around to his friends and to other homeless inhabitants at Willowbrook. Andre Rand was a pseudonym. He was born with the name Harry Russian. He had working-class parents, and his younger sister would later disclose that, to her knowledge, she and her brother were never physically or sexually abused. When he was 14, his father passed away unexpectedly, and his mother, shortly after, was sent to the Pilgrim Psychiatric Center in Brentwood, New York. It's not clear what her diagnosis was, but he had gone and visited her many times as a teenager. He eventually became one of the staff members at Willowbrook and was likely severely disturbed by the daily horrors he witnessed. Although he wore the uniform of a person who was trusted with caring for the mentally ill, he likely had a mental state comparable to one of the Willowbrook patients. This is the question. Was Rand a tormented man capable of murder? And if he was, was he a cold-blooded pervert or a disillusioned crusader fighting for what he believed to be mercy? He knew his way through all the tunnels and buildings quite well. It was like a small city underneath the Willowbrook estate. There were clothes, dishes, and cots set up throughout the tunnels. Many homeless people had lived there over the years. It was reported that Rand had a bit of a following. He had friends, perhaps that were just as sick as he was, and shared in the abuse and mistreatment of children. There were also rumors that Rand would dig up bodies from the cemetery and have sex with them. Not only that, but since he had access to a cemetery, the bodies of the other children could be buried with corpses that have been there even longer than the children. They would never be found. He was painted as a monster, perhaps deservedly so. Another branch in the case was Satanic Panic. Rand was suspected of being part of a group called the Devil's Cult. 
One of the detectives said that when they began researching the cult, he couldn't believe how big it was. In fact, one of the rooms in the basement of the old school in Willowbrook had been set up with pews and an altar, as if it were a church, but the walls were covered in satanic symbols. A storefront preacher housed Rand for his final days before being taken by police. His name was Charles Musket. The Reverend had a son who was mentally challenged and believed that Rand was initially attracted to their family because of that reason. Preacher Musket was asked to be part of a plan by police. With his permission, they bugged his house and had an officer outside, day and night. The family couldn't tell anyone what the police were doing, and because of their silence, they faced a lot of discrimination by the community. If they had told anyone at all, Rand would have found out, and it could have blown any evidence that the police were trying to collect. Their family received a lot of harassment from the community, so much so that they ended up having to move away. According to the Reverend, Rand admitted that he took Jennifer. He said that he thought her family didn't want her, and she was alone. He also told the preacher that people who had mental handicaps shouldn't be alive. I heartily disagree with Rand, and as far as I'm concerned, he can go squat in a cactus patch. Cactus Ass believed that these young children came from families that couldn't give them anything, couldn't take care of them, and so the next best thing was to eliminate them. It was ironic considering his mother had some kind of mental issue and was admitted to a home herself. He looked at these children as less than perfect, perhaps less than human, when in reality his humanity left much to be desired. As part of a final interview with Rand, the police attempted to mentally bring him back to his, quote, home. They used the video footage taken by Geraldo Rivera to bring back Rand's memories of Willowbrook. While watching the video, Andre began to cry. He said, quote, you see how it was, you see how it was, we were victims too. His eyes then rolled back in his head and he began drooling. The police begged him to tell the truth, but he seemed to have disassociated from reality. He began racking back and forth and didn't speak to anyone for three days. The second trial ended with a guilty verdict. Once again, he was found guilty of kidnapping, but escaped murder charges. Prosecutors succeeded in convincing the jury of Rand's guilt by insisting that the passage of time offered witnesses and detectives the clarity that was needed to put the pieces together that were originally missing in Holly Ann's case. Family and friends of the missing children were hurt that Rand was not convicted of murder, but without the bodies or physical evidence, kidnapping in the first degree was the best chance of keeping Rand off the street long term. He will not be eligible for parole until he is 93 years old. Thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out and to give the podcast recommendations, ratings, or reviews on your podcast platforms. A very big and special thank you goes out to those of you who have chosen to sponsor the podcast. If you would like to do so, there is a link in the show description that will show you how to do just that. It is truly appreciated. It helps defray some of the costs of research and uh, production. If you enjoyed today's case and are interested in learning more about it, there's a great documentary called Cropsy that I would recommend you watch. It shows some of the footage from the video I was talking about, and the author does a really good job explaining 
kind of the background of the legend of Cropsey and a little bit more about Andre Rand himself. I'll put a link to the documentary in the show notes as well. Um, that's where you will find my resources. Finally, I would love to hear some case suggestions or some feedback from any of you listeners. Uh, you can reach out to me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com or through Facebook, Instagram, or you can find us on TikTok. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, I'm wishing you fair winds and following seas.